Deuteronomy 28:28, the Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of the mind. That has to do with mental illness and the Lord letting you know that things in life will happen to you, but everything around you isn't for you to be a part of or be affected by. But if you go into all the situations of the world, like Harriet Beecher Stowe did, as a student and a teacher, and that in every circumstance in life, if you felt like you were going into this to learn something and then realize you could actually teach somebody something, wouldn't you choose to do those things to better yourself, to become a better person? Or you could think of this verse as fog, you know, fear, obligation, guilt. Fear is false evidence appearing real. And life can beat you down. But your obligation is not to keep the guilt. Because guilt actually means get up and love's time. Once you get knocked down in life. And this is July, and this is mental, excuse me, Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And that's why I shared that verse with you. Because I don't know if anybody out there knows that Harriet Beecher Stowe actually suffered from dementia. And the Washington Post reported back in 1888 that the 77-year-old Stowe started rewriting Uncle Tom's Cabin over and over and over again. She imagined that she was engaged in the original composition and for several hours a day, she would like industriously use her pen and paper and all these thoughts and ideas were all brand new to her like they had just come out and they were word for word the same, everybody. And that's a tragedy because she was dealing with the affliction of dementia and she thought she was doing something great and you know as we get older um we as humans seem to like always be saying oh i'm so forgetful anymore you know i hear people say that like all the time or or i have over my lifetime i guess but i think if we slowed down and we really understood the process that was going on before our eyes, we would realize that it's not a retention of information and how well you can keep a memory, but it's more of an issue of the lack of attention given to detail of certain things that we should retain. So we let go of them simplistically because that's the way things are being created today and and in today's society and that could also you know change the face of humanity over time because a lot of things that we're getting into wind up leading us to some of us to uh, you know bitter ends you know jails institution and death and like Harriet Beecher Stowe said regret The bitterest tears shed over graves are for the words left unsaid and the deeds left undone. 
again, thank you everybody for listening to me and thank you for following me. This has been one of the greatest things in my life is this podcast. It's helped me grow. It's helped me retain so much information about all kinds of different brainwave functions. And I'm really starting to put together the beauty of the human mind in my own mind. And I'm not perfect. I have problems. I'm no, I fall short of the glory of God every day, everybody. You know, I'm no saint for real. And I try to get up. But somebody once said that, you know, every saint used to be a sinner. Please remember that as you go out into your daily lives and you remember that it's Minority Mental Health Awareness Month and it would be good to give the host of a cool podcast a five-star review, you know, because it does put a lot of effort into this and (laughs) he really appreciates every single one of you. And I only have eight reviews right now on Spotify, but I'm hoping that will change in the coming month, this wonderful read by Harriet Beecher Stowe today because she is a fantabulous writer. And it's so sad to hear that, you know, the Washington Post thought that that was news to put out there that the 77-year-old, you know, was rewriting Uncle Tom's Cabin. Bless her heart. Why would you write that? She was really into it, and it, she should have been celebrated. Her mind put those words to paper again. I think that's ingenious, and again, and not everybody could do that, even with dementia, and we learned all about that last month, and because last month was uh, Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month, and this month is Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, and we should, I guess I should have switched it up and did Harriet Beecher Stowe last month, but I really wanted to do the uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe this month just for the simple fact that I had somebody reach out to me and they really wanted me to do her, so I did. And thank you guys for listening again, and I do appreciate you, and hopefully this new microphone sounds dope, because I think it sounds pretty amazing, and it really does pick up the crystal clearness of my voice, even though my voice probably sounds like nails on a chalkboard when I am talking correctly and not slurring my words. (laughs) I'm only drinking Gatorade, you guys. Thank you everybody for listening. At least 40 million people are victims of modern slavery worldwide with nearly 25 million trapped into forced labor and about 15 million into forced marriages. Almost three quarters are female and one in four a child. With modern day slavery most prevalent in Africa followed by Asia and the Pacific, Um, North Korea actually has the world's highest rate of slavery or modern day slavery with about um, one in 10 people enslaved and that and they're followed by Eritrea it's E-R-I-T-R-E-A which they're at 9.3 percent for modern day slavery then Burundi which is at four percent Central African Republic is at 2.2 percent Afghanistan is at 2.2%. South Sudan is at 2%. Pakistan's at 1.7%. Cambodia, 1.7%. And Iran at 1.6%. India is home to the largest number of slaves globally with 8 million followed by China, 3.86 million. Followed by Pakistan with 3.19 million people. North Korea, 2.64 million people were enslaved there. 
Nigeria has 1.9 million enslaved people. Iran, 1.2 million enslaved people. Indonesia has 1.22 million enslaved people. And the Democratic Republic of Congo with 1 million, followed by Russia. And Russia actually has 794,000 enslaved people. And they're followed by the Philippines with 784,000 Human trafficking generates an estimated $150 billion each year in illicit profits for traffickers and slave masters. The United Nations' latest global goals, the Sustainable Development Goals passed by the UN member uh, states in 2015 called the eradication by 2030 of forced labor, uh, modern slavery, and human trafficking, and and it will end, it'll put an end to uh, child slave labor as well, they're in hopes of, which I believe that those are not correct calculations. But what I do believe is that artificial intelligence will help end sex trafficking and artificial intelligence will also end all this like perverish behaviors around the world by men and women that um, definitely are suffering from um, some very tragic situations, I would say. And today we're doing Harriet Beecher Stowe because she is our author in the month of July. And Harriet Beecher Stowe, she was born on June 14th. Happy belated birthday to her in 1811. And she passed away July 1st. And that's why I was excited to include her on my podcast because as a kid, when I wrote, when I first read Uncle Tom's Cabin, it was just one of the best reads, and it kept me on the edge of my seat. It was like the first book that ever really drew me in, and I couldn't let go. But Harry Elizabeth Beecher Stowe passed away on July 1st, 1896. She was an American author and abolitionist, and she fought globally for um, people that were enslaved and people of lesser stature because she's seen how those lifestyles affected her family and how her family was affected by you know the pro-slavery movement and today I want, I want to read to you men of our times or leading patriots of the day and in these sketches of some of the leading public men of our times the editor professes to give such particularities of their lives and such only as the public have a right to know and Harriet Beecher Stowe is talking about the presidents of the United States at the time of her inception and her demise, obviously July 1st of 1896. She was a brilliant author. She was a brilliant abolitionist. She brought, you know, a woman's heart to the forefront of things that men had created, I believe, and not here in America, but they were created overseas and you know, because there was several different types of groups in the United States who were enslaved here. And one of the first groups was some of my people, which that was the Irish. And then, you know, the African-American the, or the Africans and then the Chinese or, you know, that we've all had every person in the United States has been affected by slavery in some kind of way, whether it be modern day slavery. And if if you ever get a chance, there's a book out there called The Same Kind of Different as Me. That gentleman, Denver, 
is his name, the guy that wrote that book, and he was actually a modern-day slave, and he jumps on a train in Red River Parish, Louisiana, and heads out. Just one day, he just jumps on a train and disappears. You know, it's it's a great book, but it's it has to do with what we're talking about, you know, modern-day slavery, slavery in itself, things that are not right for, you know, people being treated and mistreated and for what? So somebody else can live a better life or an easier life? You know, it's not fair that, you know, as humans, we love to label, we love to put down, we love to forget about, we love to make way for our comforts instead of doing the hard work to be comfortable. Every such man has two lives, his public and his private one. The one becomes fairly the property of the public and virtue of his having been connected with events in which everyone has a share of interest, but the other belongs exclusively to himself, his family, and his intimate friends, and the public have no more right to discuss or pry into its detail than they have into those of any other private individual. And we see that today in modern society. Look at, you know, people that run for political office, you know, they, the other contender tries to tear into their life and go back 40 years when none of us are fully put together until we're around the age of 29. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. I know, we all know that females develop quicker than males and become more responsible. But in reality, over time, I figured out that men are actually put into a system now that they are, uh, women are brought up and developed to be more um, <clears throat> responsible and more on the lines of understanding all the financial responsibilities in a house. It used to be the man who took care of all the finances and took care of all the things at the bank and the roles have been reversed because women are more easily um they're more easy to talk to they're more down to earth men are more closed off men are more aggressive men get upset more easily than women so the world shift in the united states because women actually have a demeanor and a chemical that their body makes or a hormone honestly that um, gives them a type of empathy and especially if they've had children their body produces a more motherly hormone and men are you know they're they're harder to do business with at times but men honestly are very analytical very serious they can really you know tear apart a business deal and then women it may take them several hours days months even to make a decision that would affect a whole entire business because women can't make irrational decisions as fast as men could because men are built to protect men are built to withstand and sustain and I find this read by Harriet Tubman very really interesting it's called men of our times or um, uh, leading patriots of the day. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And hopefully you will enjoy this read today. Whenever the means have been at hand, the family stock from which each man has been derived has been minutely traced. 
The question of inherited traits is becoming yearly one of increasing interest and most striking results come from a comparison of facts upon this subject. The fusion of different races is said to produce marked results on the characteristics of the human being. America has been a great smelting furnace in which tribes and nations have been melted together and the result ought to be some new developments of human nature. It will always be both interesting and useful to know both the quality of the family stock and the circumstances of the early training of men who have acted any remarkable part in life. Our country has recently passed through a great crisis which has concentrated upon it for a time the attention of the civilized world. It has sustained a shock which the whole world nudging by past experience said most inevitably shatter the Republic of Fragments and yet like gallant ship in full sail it has run down the terrible obstacle and gone on triumph and is this day stronger for the collision. This wonderful success is owing to the character of the people which a Christian democracy breeds. Of this people we propose to give a specimen to show how they were formed in early life from the influences which are inherent in such a state we are proud and happy to know that these names on our list are after all but specimens probably every reader of this book will recall as many more whom he will deem equally worthy of public notice there is scarcely one of them who would not say in reference to his position before the public what Lincoln said. Lincoln says, I stand where I do because some man must stand there, but there are 20 others that might as well have been leaders as myself. On the whole, we are not ashamed to present to the world this list of men as a specimen of the graduates from the American School of Christian democracy. So, far as we know, the American government is the only permanent republic which ever based itself upon the principles laid down by Jesus Christ. Of the absolute equal brotherhood of man and the rights of man on the simple ground of manhood, notwithstanding the contrary practices of a section of the United States in the Union, and the concessions which they introduced into the Constitution. Nobody doubts that this was the leading idea of the men who founded our government. The declaration of men independence crystallized a religious teaching within a political act. The Constitution of the United States still further elaborates these principles and so strong was the logic of ideas that the conflict of opinions implied and the incidental concessions to opposite ideas produced in the government of the country, a continual and irrepressible discord. For a while it seemed doubtful which idea would triumph and whether the 
accidental parasite would not strangle and wither the great original tree. And we all know we are suffering from this, you know, a hundred and some years later. The late war was the outcome of the whole. The fierce fire into which our national character has been cast in the hour of trial has burned out of it the last lingering stain of compromise with anything inconsistent with its primary object to ordain justice and perpetuate liberty. These men have all been formed by the principles of the great Christian document and the state of society, those social influences which grew out of it, and it is instructive to watch in their early life how a Christian republic trains her sons. And that's something that the United States is lacking today is the training of her Christian sons. And looking through the list, it will be seen that almost every one of these men sprang from a condition of hardworking poverty. The majority of them were self-educated men who in early life were inured to industrious toil. The farm life of America has been a nursery of great men, and there is a scarce a man mentioned in the book who has not hardened his muscles and strengthened his brain power by a hand-to-hand wrestle with the forces of nature and agricultural life, frugality, strict temperance, self-reliance, and indomitable industry have been the lessons of their early days. You know, I want to stop right there for a second and say that Abraham Lincoln was being interviewed at one point in his life, and the interviewer asked Mr. Lincoln, he said, Sir, if you had eight hours to cut down a tree, how would you spend those eight hours? Abraham Lincoln looked at him, thought for a minute, And he said, well, sir, in all honesty, I would spend the first six hours of my time sharpening my axe, creating my strategic plan of how it could only take me two hours to chop the tree up into all the individual sizes that a tree needs to be for hauling away. And I thought that was actually really informative that he took the time to think he would spend more time sharpening his axe and planning for the demise of the tree and how he would carry out the act of cutting it up as opposed to spending eight laborious hours chopping it down. In reality, it only took him two hours to chop it down because he went over it in his mind enough times that he knew he could do it. Some facts about these specimen citizens are worthy of attention. More than one half of them were born and received their early training in New England, and full one-third are direct lineal descendants of the Pilgrim Fathers. All, so far as we know, are undoubted, undoubted believers in the Christian religion. The greater proportion of them are men of particularly and strongly religious natures who have been active and efficient in every particularly religious work. All have been agreed in one belief that the teachings of Jesus Christ are to be carried out in political institutions and that the form of society based on his teachings is to be defended at any sacrifice and at all risks. 
There is scarcely a political man upon this list who early efforts were not menaced with loss and reproach and utter failure. If he advocated those principles in the conduct of political affairs, for these principles they have temporarily suffered buffeting, oppressions, losses, persecutions, and in one great instance, death. All of them honored liberty when she was hard beset, insulted, and transduced. And it is fit that a free people should honor them in the hour of her victory. It will be found when the sum of all these biographies and adding up that the qualities which have won this great physical and moral victory have not been so much exceptional gifts of genius or culture as those more attainable ones which belong to man's moral nature. Again, thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And today I'm doing Men of Our Times or Leading Patriots of the Day because I feel like we're at a loss for gentlemen like this in the United States at this point in time and that we need more people to believe in and to you know get us back to our founding fathers wants and needs of this country and the belief system that, that was once carried out here that has been suppressed at the moment but I do feel will in time come back and this is chapter one Abraham Lincoln the men of our time Lincoln foremost the war with the working man's revolution Abraham Lincoln's birth and youth the book he read the $30,000 for tender the old stocking of government money a just lawyer anecdotes his first candidacy and speech goes to legislature and Congress, the seven debate and the campaign against Douglas. In 1858, Webster's and Lincoln's language compared the Cooper Institute speech, the nomination at Chicago, moral and physical courage, the backwoodsman, president, and diplomat's significance of his presidential career, religious and feelings, his kinder, the baby did it, the first inaugural, the second inaugural, and other state papers, the conspiracy and assassination, the opinions of foreign nations on Mr. Lincoln. Our times have been marked from all other times as the scene of an immense conflict which has not only shaken to its foundation our own country, but has been felt like the theros of an earthquake through all the nations of the earth. Our own days have witnessed the closing of the great battle by the perceptions for that battle have been the slow work of years. The men of our times are the men who indirectly by their moral influence helped to bring on this great final crisis and also those who when it was brought on and the battle was set in array guided it wisely and help to bring it to its triumphant close. In making our selection, we find men of widely different spheres and characters, pure philanthropists who, ignoring all selfish and worldly politics, have labored against oppression and wrong, 
far-seeing statesman who could foresee the work of political causes from distant years, brave naval and military men educated in the schools of our country, scientific men who helped to perfect the material forces of war by their discoveries and ingenuity. All are united in one great crisis and have had their share in one wonderful passage of the world's history. Foremost on the role of men of our time, it is but right and fitting that we place the honored and venerated name of the man who was called by God's providence to be the leader of the nation in our late great struggle and to seal with his blood a proclamation of universal liberty in this country the name of Abraham Lincoln. The revolution through which the American nation has been passing was not a mere local convulsion. It was a war for a principle which concerns all mankind. It was the war for the rights of the working class of society as against the serpation of privileged aristocrats. You can make nothing else of it. That is the reason why, like a shaft of light in the judgment day, it has gone through all nations, dividing the multitudes to the right and the left. For us and our cause, all the common working classes of Europe all the toil and sweat and are pressed against all against us all privileged classes noble princes bankers and great manufacturers all who live at ease a silent instinct piercing the dividing of soul and spirit joints and marrow has gone through the earth and sent every soul with instinctive certainty where it belongs the poor laborers of this time such as Birmingham and Manchester the poor silk weavers of lions to whom our conflict has been present starvation and lingering death have stood bravely for us no one not even one blind person could deceive them. They knew that our cause was their cause, and they suffered their part heroically, as if fighting by our side, because they knew that our victory was to be their victory. On the other side, all aristocrats and holders of exclusive privileges have felt the instinct of opposition and the sympathy with a struggling aristocracy for they too felt that our victory would be their doom. This great contest has visibly been held in the hands of the Almighty God and is a fulfillment of a solemn prophecy with which the Bible is sown thick as stars that he would spare the soul of the needy and judge the cause of the poor. It was he who chose the instrument for this work, and 
he chose him with a visible reference to the rights and interests of the great majority of mankind for which he stood. Abraham Lincoln was in the strictest sense a man of the working class. All his advantages and abilities were those of a man of the working classes. All his disadvantages and disabilities those of the working class and his position at the head of one of the most powerful nations of the earth was a sign of all who live by labor that their day is coming. Lincoln was born to the inheritance of hard work. As truly as poorest laborer's son that digs in our fields, and I will share that Abraham Lincoln was punished in school. He actually was punished by his schoolmaster. I can't remember for what, but I do recall um, every 10 minutes, the schoolmaster, he had to put his arms straight out to his sides. And then like every 10 minutes for an hour, the schoolmaster as punishment would add a book to his load every 10 minutes. And if he dropped them, he had to start over. So indubitably, he was made to be a very, very strong man. And not a lot of people know this, but there were times in his teens that Abraham Lincoln actually had to quarrel with kids from his school, and Abraham Lincoln never lost a fight. And that's one-on-one hand combat, and that's legit. You can look it up. He was born in Kentucky in 1809. At seven years of age, he was set to work axe in hand to clear up a farm in a western forest. Until he was 17, his life was that of a simple farm laborer with only such intervals of schooling as farm laborers get. Probably the school instruction of his whole life would not amount to more than six months of schooling. At 19, he made a trip to New Orleans as a hired hand on a flatboat, and on his return, he split the timber for a log cabin and built it and enclosed 10 acres of land with a rail fence of his own handiwork. The next year, he hired himself for $12 a month to build a flat boat and take her to New Orleans. And anyone who knows what the life of a Mississippi boatman is like was most, excuse me, must know that it involved every kind of labor. In 1832, the Black Hawk Indian War, the Hardy Boatman volunteered to fight for his country and was unanimously elected a captain and served with honor for a season in frontier military life. He was very popular with his soldiers for two reasons. The first was his great physical strength. The second, that he could tell more and better stories than any other man in the army. Odd constitutes for a commander's character, but like everything else in Lincoln's life, the fact shows how wonderfully he represented and therefore suited the people. Sometime after the war, the surveyor of Sangamon County, which that's in Illinois, everybody, being driven with work, came to him to take the survey of tract off from his hand. And my grandma was actually born in that county. True, he had never studied surveying, but what of that? He accepted the job 
procured a chain and a treatise on surveying and did the work. Do we not see in this a parallel of the wider wilderness which in 10 years he was to undertake to survey and fit for human habitation without chart or surveyor's chain. After this, while serving as a postmaster, he began his law studies. He looked the postmastermanship for the sake, excuse me, he took the postmastermanship for the sake of reading all the papers that came in to the town at the same time borrowing the law books he was too poor to buy and studying them by light of his evening fire in his cabin. He soon acquired a name in the country about as a man of resources and shrewdness. He was one that people looked to for counsel and extringencies and whom they were ready to depute almost any enterprise which needed skill and energy or patience and justice. He was in great request, says one of his biographers, by thick-headed people because of his clear clearness and skill in narration. It might well have been added because also of his kindness, patience, and perfect justness of nature in listening, apprehending, and staring. Mr. Lincoln was now about 23 his life thus far may perhaps be considered as his education at any rate. It is the part of his life which answers to school years, college course, and professional studies of a regular educated lawyer at the East. It included of actual schooling only the six months total already mentioned. Even then, it was his mother who had taught him to read and write of the use of books of any kind. This backwoods graduate had little enough. His course of reading was a very thorough and his course of reading was a very thorough illusion of the ancient rule to read not many but much. He read seven books over and over, of three of them the Bible, Shakespeare, and Aesop's fables. He could repeat large portions by heart. The other four were The Pilgrim's Progress, The Life of Washington, The Life of Franklin, and The Life of Henry Clay. It is a curious fact that neither then nor afterwards did he ever read a novel. He began Ivanhoe once, but was not interested enough to finish it. He was one of those men who have the particular faculty of viewing this whole world of men and things as a side spectator and the interest of the drama of life thus silently seen at first hand was to him infinitely more interesting than any second-hand imitation this is abraham lincoln my life is story enough once said a person of this particular temperament what should I want to read stories for? The interest he felt in human beings was infinitely stronger with him than the interest in aristocratic representation. One of his biographers says that he seldom bought a new book and seldom read one, 
and he adds with a good deal of truth that his education was almost entirely a newspaper one, and that he was one of the most thorough newspaper readers in America's time. But that which was more, more and much more the real essence of his self-education was the never-ceasing and strenuous course of laborious thought and reasoning that he kept up upon the meaning, the connection, the tendency, the right and wrong, the helps or remedies of all the past facts he read of or of the present facts that he experienced in life. And this education he not only began early and pursued effectively, but he never ceased it. All his life he maintained that course of steady labor after practical knowledge and practical wisdom. Whenever he could read a book, he did, and his practice for a long time was, after having finished it, to write out an analysis of it, a very fatiguing but very improving process. One of his companions, while a young hiring, excuse me, while a young hired man described him in after years as the likeliest boy of God's world, he would work all day as hard as any of us and study by firelight in the log cabin house half the night. And in this way, he made himself a thorough, practical survivor. Another man described, described him as he saw him while working for a living in 1830, thereabouts lying on a trundle bed with one leg stretched out rocking the cradle containing the child of his host while he himself was absorbed in study of English grammar. The world has many losses that mankind are not conscious of. The burning of the Alexandrian library was an irreparable loss, but a greater loss is in the silence of great and particular minds. Had there been any record of what Lincoln thought and said while he thus hewed his way through the pandetic mazes of book learning, we might have some of the newest, the strangest, the most original contributions to the philosophy of grammar and human language in general that ever have been given. They would have savored very much of Beethoven's answer when the critics asked him why he would use consecutive octaves in music, and he replied, Because they sound well, said the scornful old autocrat, and Lincoln's quiet perseverance in a style of using the English language, particularly his own, had something of the same pertinacity. Well, which means pertaining to. He seemed equally amused by the critical rules of rhetoric and as benevolently and paternally indulgent of the mass of eager scholars who thought them important as he was to the turbulent baby whom he rocked with one leg while he pursued his grammatical studies. But after his own quaint, silent fashion, he kept up his inquiries into the world of book learning with remarkable perseverance and his friend and biographer mr arnold says 
became thoroughly at home in all the liberal studies and scientific questions of the day. This is rather strongly put, and we fancy that Lincoln would have smiled shrewdly over it, but the specifications which Mr. Arnold adds are... Undoubtedly true. Mr. Lincoln had mastered English and made some progress in Latin and knew the Bible more thoroughly than many who have spent their lives in its pursuit. But what book learning he obtained would never have made him a lawyer, not to say president. The education which gave him success in life was his self-training in the ability to understand and to state facts and principles about men and things. In 1836, our backwoodsman, float boat hand captain surveyor, obtained a license to practice law and, as might be expected, rose rapidly. One anecdote will show the esteem in which he was held in his neighborhood. A client came to him in a case relating to a certain land claim, and Lincoln said to him, Your first step must be to take $30,000 and go make a legal tender. It, of course, will be refused, but it is a necessary step. But, said the man, I haven't the $30,000 to make it with. Oh, that's it. Just step over to the bank with me and I'll get it. So into the bank they went and Lincoln says to the cashier, we just want to take $30,000 to make a legal tender with. I'll bring it back in an hour or two. The cashier handed across the money to Honest Abe and without a scratch of the pen in acknowledgement, he strode his way with the money all in the most sacred simplicity made with the tender and brought it back with as much nonchalance as if he had been borrowing a silver spoon of his grandmother's. What a great guy, right? That's the kind of president we need now in the United States. That's how I feel. In those days, while confessing that he had felt the prompting of ambition and disappointment of ill success, there was one manly and noble sentiment that ought to be printed in letters of gold as the motto of every rising young man. Speaking of the distinction at which Douglas was aiming, and that's who President Lincoln was debating all the time back then, was uh, Mr. Douglas. And this is what he had to say. So reached as the oppressed of my species might have equal reason to rejoice with me. I should value it more than the prudest crown that could deck the brow of a monarch. At this moment of his life, he could look back and see far behind him the grave of the once brilliant Douglas, who died worn out and worn down with disappointed ambition, while he, twice elected to the presidency, was now standing the observed of all the world in a triumph that has no like in history. And it was a triumph made memorable and particular by the astonicities and 
hallelujahs of those very oppressed with whose care years before he had waited and burdened his progress. It was one of those earthly scenes which grandly foreshadow that great final triumph predicted in prophecy when the Lord God shall wipe away all tears from all faces and rebuke his people shall he utterly take away. A contemporary witness has described Lincoln calm and simple, leading his little boy by the hand while the liberated blacks hailed him with hymns and prayers, mingling his name at each moment with ascriptions of praise and glory to Jesus, the great liberator, whose day at last had come. Who can say of what ages of mournful praying and beseeching, what uplifting of poor, dumb hands that hour was the outcome? Years before, a clergyman of Virginia visiting the black insurrectionist, Nate Turner, in his cell before execution, gives the following wonderful picture of him, and rags, and chains covered with blood and bruises, he yet is inspired by such a force of enthusiasm as he lifts his chained hands to heaven, as really filled my soul with awe. It is impossible to make him feel that he is guilty. He is evidently he evidently believes that he was called to God to do the work he did. When I pointed out to him that it could not be because he was taken condemned and about to be executed, he answered with enthusiasm was not jesus christ crucified my cause will succeed yet years passed and the prophetic visions of nat turner were fulfilled on the soil of virginia it did indeed rain blood and very leaves of the trees drip blood but the work was done the yoke was broken and the oppressed went free an old negress who stood and saw the Confederate prisoners being carried for safekeeping into the former slave pens, said grimly, Well, the Lord am slow, but he am sure. As the final scenes of his life drew on, it seemed as if a heavenly influence overshadowed the great martyr and wrought in him exactly the spirit that a man would wish to be found in when he is called to the external world. His last expressions and recorded political actions look towards peace and forgiveness. On the day before his death, his joyful ordered the discontinuance of the draft. His very last official act was to give orders that two of the chief leaders of the rebellion then expected to disguise at seaport on their flight to Europe should not be arrested but permitted to embark so that he was thinking only of saving the lives of rebels when they were thinking of taking his if he had tried to set purpose to clear his soul for God's presence and to put the rebels and their assassin companion in the wrong before the final tribunal he could not have done better Mr. Lincoln seems to have had during his course a marked presentment of the fate which had 
from the first been threatening him, and which the increased pile of letters marked assassination. And I do want to say that the word assassination was actually created by Shakespeare. It was the first time ever being recorded in all writings throughout time was Shakespeare. Gave him constant reason to remember. In more than one instance, he had, in his public speeches, professed a solemn willingness to die for his principles. The great tax which his labors and responsibilities made on his vitality was perhaps one reason for his frequently saying that he felt that he should not live to go through with it. He observed, too, Mr. Lovejoy during the gentleman's last illness in February 1864. This war is eating my life out. I have a strong impression that I shall not live to see the end. In July following, he said to a correspondent of the Boston Journal, I feel a presentment that I shall not outlast the rebellion. When it is over, my work will be done. Concerning the last painful history, there had been a thousand conflicting stories. From the mass of evidence, the following brief account has been prepared which sufficiently outlines the circumstances. Who were the persons concerned in the assassination of President Lincoln? Has never been judicially proved. Perhaps it never will be. The indictment against the conspirators named the following parties. David E. Harold, George A. Atzerot, Louis Payne, Michael O'Laughlin, Edward Spangler, Samuel Arnold, Mary A. Surratt, Samuel A. Mudd, John H. Surratt, John Wilkes Booth, Jefferson Davis, George N. Sanders, Beverly Tucker, Jacob Thompson, William C. Clary, Clement C. Clay, George Harper, and George Young. And it added, and others unknown, the assassin was John Wilkes Booth, and whether or not Jefferson Davis and his fellows in the rebel government were actually aiding and abetting in this particular crime, it has not been unjust nor unnatural to suspect them of it. For Mr. Davis certainly accredited Thompson, Sanders, Clay, and Tucker as his official agents in Canada. And that's a note to remember right there for a second, because I want to say some other things. When we get a little farther, these men in their turn and acting in harmony with their instructions and the purposes of their government gave a commission to that John A. Kennedy. And remember, this is the Civil War, who was detected in attempting to kindle an extensive fire in the city of New York and consulted with him about his proposed plans. And John A. Kennedy was a constable in New York City at the time, which, you know, a little farther back, you know, his official agents in Canada, which we all know during the Prohibition, the Kennedys pretty much made their money by running alcohol from Canada to the U.S. And I tried to look and see if John A. Kennedy was related to, you know, John F. Kennedy, but 
it really didn't say much on the internet about it, but it makes me wonder, you know, it's kind of interesting. So, and now back to this wonderful read. And hopefully you're enjoying this. It's kind of cool. This was the substance of Kennedy's own confession. And he and his accomplices did kindle fires in four of the New York hotels. It is completely proved again that Davis paid sun-dry sums and all 35000 in gold to incendiaries hired by his government to burn hospitals and steamboats at the West and that Thompson paid money to a person engaged in Dr. Blackburn's attempt to spread yellow fever in our cities. That's kind of terrifying to think about. You know, they were actually using biological warfare in the Civil War, trying to spread yellow fever and whatnot, you know, throughout the cities. Um, And thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And hopefully you've been enjoying this uh, month of Harriet Tubman. It is Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And right now I'm doing Men of Our Times or Leading Patriots of the day and thank you so much again for sharing me and please head over to spotify give me a five star review if you would i like five stars it just makes sense i can count them on you know one hand and it just goes well with uh the great podcast that i'm putting together for you guys and hopefully you're enjoying it hopefully you've learned some things and you're growing you know i try to teach you guys about different things that i've learned in life and the things that i use to get through cope regain footing and move forward because we all get beat down and we get to a certain point in life that we realize all of our mistakes in the past and we need to um give those things that we have done that we don't like we need to give them recognition you know let let ourselves know it's okay and then just move on from them and try to be the best people we know how to be each and every day even though that maybe There are circumstances surrounding your life that are unpleasant right now and maybe you're going through some things that nobody knows about or maybe you're holding on to things that, you know, you don't want to hurt somebody with and that you know something's wrong and you're doing nothing about it. But, you know, telling somebody you're getting help is the best way to be. You don't want to hold that stuff in and take it from me. I used to hold everything in and all it does is create conformity in your mind of different functions being altered because you're holding on to things instead of letting them go and it's like fog you know fears obligation guilt and we need to get past that stuff and realize that we all suffer from fog at times in our life that's what makes us feel tired driven down and you need to take control and realize that you are enough get up take a step repeat like my buddy over there at the the morning boost I love that guy, Scott Smith. He really gets you going in the morning, man. If you don't know about Scott Smith, head over to the Morning Boost. Check him out. He's a great podcaster. I love the Hidden Brain, Sean K. Nirvanta. He's a great um, podcaster that I've come across, and hopefully you've checked him out too. And I like to share some of my favorites with you because there's a lot of motivational speakers out there that have taught me a lot of different things, and I've been to seminars. You know, there's Tony Robbins. You can spend $5,000 and go to one of his seminars, but you don't ever leave there without ever... That was Men of Our Time by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is the Only You Podcast, and this has been a wonderful read. Hopefully, you'll get out there and check this book out because Harriet Beecher Stowe talks about many other people in this book, like Grant, Sumner, Chase, Wilson, Stanton, Douglas, Sherman, and many, many more. So rush out there and check it out. 
She has many other writings that she has done throughout her life that you all can check out in the public domain. It's free. And I wish you would because you could expand your knowledge so much. I know I give you a little bit of it here, but there's so much more to some of these readings. And I just want to share with you guys another thing that I've learned recently. I picked up a book. Uh, I shouldn't say I picked up a book. I picked up an audible, actually. Uh, Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty. And he has a podcast, too. He talks about Dharma, Varna, and Sava and this book and it's really interesting the sanskrit hindu writings and how they pertain to psychology and how you can tell if you know anything about neuroplasticity you can see how it works in this book and how he puts all these intricate things together such a genius jay shetty thank you so much for that wonderful write man i appreciate it and People, I do want to share with you something, though, that I didn't hear in the book is he didn't really talk about karma. And something that really bothered me in life was like, karma will get him or, oh, that's karma for you. And when people would say that, me being a Christian, I would always feel like nails on a chalkboard in my heart because did they really understand what they were saying? Because I knew in my heart that it wasn't right, but I didn't know why I felt the way I did. And Years later, I started researching and understanding what the word karma meant. And re in reality, all these things in Hindu and Sanskrit are tied together. Dharma, Varna, Karma, Sava. And Sava is the environment around you. That's what Jay Shetty says and Think Like a Monk. That's a great read. You guys got to check it out. And in reality, Dharma is your purpose in life. And Varna, there are four different types of Varna or behavior or personality types. And it's kind of the people that we deal with in everyday situations. And I also did a podcast and I talked about um, Surrounded by Idiots was a book that is a wonderful uh, read because it teaches you all about the four behavior types of the disc system, dominant, inspiring, stable, and compliant. And I talked about that in another podcast too. You know, it's, it's interesting because Varna is very similar to Eric Thompson's surrounded by idiots in the disc system theory of how there are four different types of personality or behavior types. And I thought that was really cool. And I wanted to share that with you guys. And hopefully you've been enjoying Harriet Beecher Stowe. And so I did choose her for a fan. So thank you so much for reaching out and saying that you wanted me to do Harriet Beecher Stowe. So I did do that. And I do find her writings very intricate, detailed, um, a well a well-rounded person, honestly, in society and with just being a real person and seeing things for what they really were. And I just want to say that this was one of the greater reads that I've read of hers. And I went on to read about Grant, too. And interesting, you know, he was considered to be like the hero of America, and no matter what he did, if, and Lincoln talked about his drinking, you know, and he was upset about it because he was a bad drunk. And it's crazy that he actually owned a uh, leather store in Kewanee, Illinois, uh, General Grant did. 
And I found that to be kind of interesting because I've been to Kiwani. They got Wright's furniture up there and all kinds of other cool little intricate detailed areas of history are in that town. That's quite a place, really. It's by Galesburg, Illinois, too. So there's a lot of history in that town as well. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And thank you for stopping over there at Spotify and giving me a five-star review. I do appreciate that, too. You guys have been real. You're cool. I appreciate when you do vote, even though... I'm not the greatest. I try to give you some cool reads and some cool information to think about. And hopefully you appreciated the books that I have told you about too. Because I do think that Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty is one you should really check out. Because once you learn about Dharma, Varna, Karma, and how it all kind of works together. And how you're supposed to be of service in life and not just, you know... Because in America, I feel like we're just... we're. There's not much service here anymore. We're kind of closed off and we need to get our people back to good, you know, like RFK Jr. He's like, I don't care about people's behaviors and personalities. I care about what they vote like and what they feel is necessary to make things right. And we have a huge election coming up in 2024 here in the United States and I know they're trying to put, you know, our old president, Donald Trump, in jail now. And we got Joe Biden, who they're continuing to kind of berate him, making fun of the way he's talking and slurring. And that's upsetting, you know, because this is going down in history. This is affecting our young people. And I think that I've said this before in other memes, too. Or other memes, wow. Another podcast about memes, you know, making fun of our presidents. You know, young people are going to remember that. It's tarnishing our presidency forever here. And people are continuing to make memes uh, pretty much because it is freedom of speech. But, I mean, there's a point when you got to respect your country to an extent. And, I mean, you don't have to respect the government, but you got to respect our country because we have a fair voting system, and I do believe that Everything will play out the way it's supposed to, even though everybody wants everything to be turmoil and turned upside down and they want us to all be in conflict and nobody to live with Dharma to where we can live as a teacher and a student and be one with everything around us and each other and equal, peaceful, loving and caring and not so judgmental and fear driven uh, it's, it's an honest weird time in our country's history, I think. And hopefully you guys have enjoyed this Harriet Beecher still read and I'll stop getting off on tangents and stay on the book, uh, topic. Thank you so much again for following me and for the five star reviews. Again, this is your boy, Lo Jackson. It's the only you podcast. And thank you for tuning in, listening to all my craziness. I appreciate you and until next time.